There's a correction to be made in this episode where Nancy's guest mistakenly says Medicare when she meant to say Medicaid. Sandy has asked us to clarify that Medicare does not contribute to the cost of long-term care, while Medi-Cal or Medicaid does. Thank you. Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wigman. We generally are more accepting of dementia when it strikes the elderly. Today's guest began writing seriously 12 years ago when her 52-year-old husband was diagnosed with dementia. Sandy Paris has now written a book about a journey through dementia from her perspective, Catching Rain. The frontal and left temporal lobes of her husband's brain was where neurons first began to shrivel and die. Frontotemporal deterioration, FTD, is a rare dementia that her husband Randy experienced, even though he did all the things medical experts now say we should do for brain health. So far, researchers have been unable to identify a cause. The book, Catching Rain, by a retired medical social worker, is essential reading for medical professionals, social workers, clergy, caregivers, as well as those of us who may not expect to be touched by dementia. Sandy Paris, welcome. Thank you. So nice to be here. Where did you meet your husband? I met him when I was living in Redding, California, and um, we had mutual friends, and we just became friends first and got together with them. They started putting us together, unbeknownst to us, um, and, and it just worked. We clicked. Well, he was quite tall, and of course, when you're first meeting him, that didn't play a role, I think, other than this handsome man who was tall and athletic, <laughs> slender. But later on, that becomes a problem. This fact that he was so tall and strong became a problem when he started suffering the symptoms of dementia. And how yeah. was that the case? Yes, and it's interesting to me that you pulled that out because... That absolutely was something I was attracted to, and it absolutely was a huge problem when his dementia kicked in, and as it advanced, it became very difficult to, number one, find a facility or caregivers even to come into the home before we looked for a facility, but people were afraid of him because he was so big and young and and also did not respond to verbal cues. So those three things all combined to make it very, very difficult to find care for him. Well, you mentioned Reading, and just in passing, I thought it was interesting that you knew somebody who established what was called the Carter House Natural Science Museum, but we know by a different name today. Yes. It is the, um, oh, the Turtle Bay complex with the beautiful bridge. And, and that all started with my friend Marcia Howe and Gary Matson. They were founders of a very grassroots um, organization called the Carter House Natural Science Museum. And it morphed into Turtle Bay, which is just an amazing thing. And I noticed nature played a role in your life. You apparently love to garden. I do. And I was with my husband. We created this monster of a native, um, native plant garden and wildlife sanctuary, basically. And it was kind of our, our thing that we did together. It was our great project. And gardening is still really important to me. I live in a condo now and I have a little backyard. I spent hours last, the last couple of days, like digging up things and moving things and doing my little gardening project here. And also I have a community garden spot just right out my front door, which is part of the park system here. So I still garden, but not on the scale that we used to together. 
My guest is Sandy Paris, and she is a retired medical social worker whose husband developed dementia at 50 years old, and he was diagnosed at 52. But, but um, Sandy, I want to go back several years to when you were a young woman, uh, your husband then was in the military, and you were going to have a baby. And I think it's helpful for those of us living in these times, because this was earlier, to see what you went through when you had this baby. Would you tell us what you experienced? Oh, my gosh. Maybe I should read it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Here we go. The world has changed since 1967, when I was 21 years old and expecting my first child. My husband was in the army and had spent a year on the border of Thailand and Vietnam, flying supplies into the war zone. When he returned, I quit my job in San Francisco to join him on a base in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and soon became pregnant. We looked forward to this baby. But when he was born, and, and there's a big story before that, but I'll skip through that, um, they wouldn't bring him to me in the hospital, it was days and I kept asking for my baby. And finally, these doctors lined up at the foot of my bed. Well, before that, even you against their wishes, you went out to find to see your baby on your own. And right. oh, that was, you weren't supposed to do that, Sandy. And you describe looking through, well, let's see, I'll look through the little babies wrapped in blue blankets. Hmm, not there. Look through the section, babies in pink blankets, because they gave boys and girls different color blankets. Yeah. And it took you a while, but you did finally find your baby. And where was he? He was stuck in the very back of the nursery. And the first time that I got out there, I had to sneak out at night because I was supposed to be staying in my bed. Um, I was escorted back by this angry nurse telling me that I had no right to be there. And I had that you had no right to see your own baby. Oh, I know. And I'd been asking and asking. And so um, she escorted me back. And then I became even more determined. So I so if you can't see your baby, you can't feed your baby either. You can't hold your baby. Yeah. And and that was deliberate. And of course, it was 1967, but it was also in Arkansas. And they were behind um, at that time in many of the, the ways that California was ahead in social services and understanding the importance and, and also the capabilities of children with developmental disabilities like like Down syndrome, which is what my son had. But they didn't tell you that. No. They, they just told you, what did they tell you? you were gonna, they didn't want you to see this baby. They didn't want you to become attached to this baby because they were saying this baby is going to have to be institutionalized. That's right. That's right. When I finally got um, back to the big window with all the babies, my baby was in the very back with a little blue blanket. And there was a new, new nurse that was our caregiver that was taking charge of the babies. And she brought him up front so I could see him and it was just um it was terrifying because he had had a very difficult time and it, just through the long labor and birth and um nobody had been holding him for days you know and um so when the doctors finally they medicated me after that and when it finally wore off these doctors and there was a head doctor he was the guy in charge and and they were standing at the foot of my bed and they said your baby is not all right and so we went through this incredible moment of actually I did myself because my husband was already aware and I wasn't and so just absorbing that and then then they did say that he was mongoloid that was a term that they used back in those days and I knew what that was and it was devastating because my knowledge was that mongoloid children number one I, you didn't see them very often because they were not in our communities and this is the reason is that they were discouraged from being taken home there were no services nobody 
would help the family. And that's what they still did in, in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And so they refused to let me hold him. They told me that um, he would <laughs> he would need a um, an alarm clock. And I laugh about this because of course it was ridiculous because nobody ever had to remind him when to eat. Um, <laughs> you'd have to get an alarm clock for him to know enough to cry when he was hungry, that there was no way that we could, it would be unfair to other children we might have because he would consume all of our resources and time. And it was just nothing but doom and gloom. And um, then in the middle of the night, and we were prepared to sign papers, um, the, the plan was, and I guess it was what they did there at that time, is you would sign papers in the hospital and the baby, and you would relinquish care, so you would never see your baby. It would go into foster care for six months and then directly into an institution and um, until and live its life in an institution. And so I had this young, and we were prepared to sign those papers because, because you were young yourself. You didn't you overwhelmed yeah. and terrified and yeah. And so this young intern, a young doctor came in and he had been in that lineup of, of doctors at the foot of my bed. And he came in in the middle of the night and he told me that there are services in California. He read my chart and saw that we were headed back to California when my husband got out of the service. And, and that's where he lived. He was just doing an internship in Arkansas. And he encouraged me to hold the baby in and the nurse that brought the baby was upset because she had been told not to give me the baby. And it was like this light bulb moment, which we all have throughout our lives. But this is this moment where, she, where he said, um, do you want to hold your baby? And he's looking at the nurse and looking at me because he wants me to speak up. And I said, oh, yes, I want to hold my baby. I want to feed my baby. And, and um, it was the moment that I took charge, actually. And the story, it seems to me, in my view, Sandy, has a happy ending. Uh, just to bring us up to date, so if you wonder, well, what happened to this child? So would you bring us up to date and tell us where this baby is now? Well, he's living in Oregon, very close to me now, but he lived his most of his life up until the last few years in Redding, California, and that was his community, and he had wonderful people around him, and we had just lots of support and lots of adventures, lots of craziness, but he was just a tremendous, wonderful asset to our family and to the community, and he he had a great, he's had a great life. He's kind of retired now. He's getting old and cranky like me. <laughs> <laughs> and right mentioned his name is Scott. <laughs> and I did mention that your husband's name uh, was Randy. Randy Brown, yeah. Randy Brown. And um, he starts developing the symptoms of dementia. Mm-hmm. And you have a section in your book, the title of it is, is Last Times. And it is so touching because I think so many of us have been through something similar. It could be a beloved dog and people could realize, oh, that's the last time I could take my dog for a walk. But with your husband, it is so touching when you tell us the last times he was able to do various things. And would you read the paragraph that starts that chapter, please, Sandy? Sure. Um, a notable thing about last times is that we are so often unaware they are happening. Every morning, someone somewhere wakes up to find a loved one gone. People walk away or die without permission. Whether they go suddenly or slowly, it is when we look back that we realize, oh, that was the last time we did that. Went there, made love, laughed, fought, danced, or said, I love you. This is author Sandy Paris reading from her book, Catching Rain, 
a woman rediscovers herself in stories her lover has forgotten. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Sandy Paris, who has written a memoir about her husband's getting dementia at a rather young age, being diagnosed at age 52. Tell us what happened or read the last time your husband was able to get behind the wheel of an automobile. Oh, yes, that was one of the big ones. I think driving in our culture is, is such an important Oh, yeah. Not just independence, but self-esteem. And I think it's one of the most difficult things for people to let go of. Okay, I will read mm, a chapter, well, a couple of paragraphs here. After your diagnosis, you were automatically banned from driving work vehicles because of the liability. The day they notified you, you came home angry and mortified. Now, when you're saying you, this is you're addressing your husband when you're telling this story. So the day they notified you, your husband, yes. he came home angry and mortified. And uh, continue, please, Sandy. Yes, and I am reading from the book, and and because yeah. I switch from first book person to second person throughout the book, um, I begin telling Randy things he used to know, and so that's the format of the book. And the narrative. So I'm speaking to Randy, telling him this story about himself, actually. After your diagnosis, you were automatically banned from driving work vehicles. The day they notified you, you came home angry and mortified. I had the same concern about liability, but could not reason with you. It took I took it slow and watched carefully. You still knew your way around town and you seemed to understand basic rules of the road. You drove short distance back and forth to work for months without incident. One day, I was a passenger while you were driving, and we came to a detour sign because of road work. You ignored it and drove through the traffic cones to continue the route you were used to taking. That was the day that I hid his car keys, and we called the neurologist to have him um, be notified. She was supposed to have contacted DMV and had neglected to do that. Yeah, I think people don't know that. That is her obligation to notify the DMV of a diagnosis of dementia. What I it's would, a requirement. Yeah, I mm -hmm. and and they give you an opportunity if you know if you're the person being notified, you can you can ask for a review and they will test you and determine whether indeed you can drive, but he couldn't participate in that. So because mm -hmm. then he gets mad at the DMV. Oh yeah, I got mad at DMV and and I would pretend to help him look for his car keys and um, over and over until he finally gave up. I mean, I got really good at pretending and I became very deceitful when it was necessary. And I think that's something that we struggle with a bit. You know, when to when do you take something away from a person? It's it's a really monstrous decision. And you tell us that that vehicle sat in the driveway for nearly a year until he didn't notice it anymore. And then you realize you could you could decide to sell that. Um, but then <laughs> when he was no longer driving, he became the navigator. 
oh, he my would God. shout at you. He called him the navigator from hell. He would shout stop at every stop sign or red light. And he would yell, go, every green light and look out. <laughs> Watch out if you saw an animal or a person. Um, we had this um, way of laughing at everything. And so I remember telling him, and I think I wrote it in the book, that I might have to gag you or kill you. <laughs> <laughs> laughing voice. And he just laughed. But that's how we got through these tough times. And, and yeah. Well, those of us who, um, I started to say, who don't have experience with dementia, but it we might and not realize it. I um, was riding a stationary bike at a fitness club this morning, and this lady got on the bike beside me, just this big smile on her face. And she asked me my name, and then she said, but, you know, I probably won't remember your name very shortly. And she went on to explain that she... Her husband was there riding the bike on the other side of her. And I thought, my goodness, here's a lady that she's so pleasant and she seems fine. But she, I don't know to what degree, apparently was suffering from dementia. So I think it's helpful for those of us who maybe are not touched with it directly by friends and family to understand that maybe there's this guy shouting at his wife while she's driving and that maybe that's what's going on. I think that's so incredibly important for us all, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, he looked absolutely normal for a very long time. And mm -hmm. then behavior would be so bizarre that people would be confused. And some people would get angry before they realize, oh, something's wrong here. And yeah. um, I think it happens. I remember being with a family member who was treating this person working in Walmart of all places. He was very proud of his job and he looked normal, but he was developmentally disabled. And he was, we later found out that he was slow and, and my family member got really impatient with him. And, and it's such a lesson. We never know really what's going on with other people. And just to kind of be patient and kind, even when you're frustrated is a really important thing to remember, to try to do, you know? Well, so much of who we are is tied up with the work that we do. And you say in your book, we all knew when your, your husband's last official day at the office would be because we helped you retire. And how did that go? His last day at work? Well, the last day, the official last day was was um, wonderful because we had a party and and he was all packed up. I have this great picture of him with his feet on the desk and it's all cleared and the windows are, you know, the sun is shining on him. And about two weeks later, he got dressed and decided he was going back to work again. And I had to really work hard to convince him that he couldn't um, go back to work. He didn't fully realize, even though he retired and had a party, it wasn't, you know, it was like, oh, this is fun, but he didn't really understand that he couldn't go back to work. And then one day, his supervisor called and invited him to sit through a meeting because she knew he missed everybody. And, and each um, week, they would report on all the programs. He used to oversee these programs. And, and she thought he might enjoy sitting in and just listening and you know, hearing how things are going. And I don't think either one of us realized how much he didn't understand anymore. We thought he would just go and sit. And so I took him and dropped him off and he took the meeting hostage and nobody knew what to do. He had gathered together pictures of himself, anything with his name on it, um, documents, diplomas, awards, and he put him in a briefcase and then presented them at this meeting and passed him around and couldn't really talk very well. You know, he'd speak really simple words and it was horribly awkward. It was just. Yeah. And uh, those of us who were, find ourselves in a similar situation, I think we can be more patient and realize it, it's, yeah, uh, that this is the way it is for somebody in his situation yeah and for for me of course I realized when I heard about it that 
he was trying to tell them that he's important. He's still important. And that's what he was doing, but he didn't know how to do it any other way. And I think everybody was very sweet, but it was really uncomfortable. Yeah. He worked with some amazing people. They've all been incredibly supportive through the whole thing. My guest is Sandy Paris, and she's written a memoir about her husband's, uh, you shorten it to FTD, frontotemporal deterioration, which is a rare form of dementia. You tell us that only 10% of people have this particular form of dementia. And, you know, when I was reading your book and this chapter on last times, I realized that, uh, yeah, I had a good friend. We went for a bicycle ride and he can't ride a bicycle anymore. And I didn't realize that was the last bicycle ride we could take. And so much of this, you you do these things and you don't realize, oh my gosh, that was, because you don't realize at the time, that was the last bicycle ride. And your husband loved your his bicycle. Oh, he did. Yes. Um, I wrote a whole chapter or a whole story about his last bicycle ride. And he got all turned around and um, got lost. You know, he went the wrong way, went back to the starting um, place. It was just tragic. And and so after that, friends would ride with him. And then eventually he would just ride in the garage. And, um, and then he forgot how to shift gears. And gradually he could only ride in the garage because he couldn't really, he could balance the bicycle but he didn't know how to change the tire anymore. He got stuck out when he would ride his training. It was just a gradual process for him, but it was just really sad. All these things that we, we look back on and riding a bicycle is, whether we do it together or alone, for those of us who love bicycles, <laughs> it's a real, yeah. You also tell us, what it was like when you made your last trip to Costco with him, because you reached a point where you couldn't leave him at home by himself. And yet you couldn't take him on these errands or things that you were doing. And what was your last trip to Costco with him? What was that like? Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was actually the last time I took him to any store ever again. It was time. He, um, he began, <laughs> do you want me to read? It's too much to read. Okay. <laughs> uh, we we um, were standing in the entrance to Costco and um, he, he just started putting, I'm, there were two Costco stories and I'm, I find my mind kind of mixing them up here. But I think the last trip to Costco was when he, he was, he would do these things where he, he had certain things he wanted and he wanted always movies. And so I would try to tell him one movie and then he would get four or five movies. But, you know, you, you, it's like having a six foot four, four year old and trying to explain to, to them and they don't really fully comprehend. And so we ended up having movies piled in the cart. He saw his social, um, boundaries and his filters were completely gone and he saw these lovely women when he saw a beautiful woman he'd say are those boobies or he would he would point to women or little girls is that a small girl and all women became girls um that's an old girl or um he there was a woman in a in a scooter and she was disabled and and he started chasing her and saying, that's a huge girl. Is she in a wagon? And he's chasing her through Costco. And I had these cards that we carried to explain um, what FTD was and please excuse my companion. And people would either take them or throw them on the floor. And finally we um, got to the back and they were having samples where they had all the sample tables. And, and he shoved a bunch of samples in his mouth and then spit them out on the floor and said, that's bad. <laughs> and I'm heading for the cookies, the bakery and the chickens. And I finally just grabbed his, his movies and held him up because that was the one thing he would not let go of. And 
he had to follow me. We got out of Costco and it was just unbelievable. It was a series of nightmare moments and it was weeks before I could laugh about it. But but now I, I do find it hysterically funny. And, and I think I said in the story that I hope the woman in the wheelchair in particular or the scooter doesn't give up going because in. how how you're put in such an awkward situation that you try to explain it by having these cards that you would hand out and some people were already so mad they didn't want that card they would just throw it away or back away and yeah do you have any recommendation for somebody who is put in the situation that you were in i mean how do you explain to people please don't be offended my husband has dementia um yeah, and usually you don't get that many hits in one visit. <laughs> so so um, up to that point, I was able to navigate, and I would explain to people, because he looked perfectly normal. That was the other yeah, thing. We see pictures of him, and he's this handsome, healthy-looking man that you would never guess is suffering it, from dementia. Exactly. And I think if you can explain to people, great. And if not, I mean, it's just not worth a fight. But just the cards, I think, were really helpful. And I would see some people read them after they got away from him. Um, mm -hmm. So in that regard, I think they had to have provided some, some mm -hmm. bit of information that was helpful. But I really don't have any answers other than at some point, it may not be worth the... Um, the benefit versus the risk or the downside of taking someone into the community that you cannot control. And he was one of those people. He never physically hurt anybody and he wouldn't, but he did frighten people. And you have to consider that too. So, you know, at some point, I just stopped going to certain places with him. And it was, it was sad for me, but I think it was the right decision for both of us because it was also stressful for him and for certainly other people. So those are things you just, it's very individualized. I don't know that you can, other than just thinking about it and sharing these stories, it's by sharing our experiences that we open each other's minds and at least consider the possibilities and whether we're on the receiving end or the delivery end of those kinds of, of exchanges. My guest is Sandy Paris, and I haven't mentioned, but you earned a master's degree in social work, and you have now written a memoir, Catching Rain, A Woman Rediscovers Herself in Stories Her Lover Has Forgotten, and this lover, of course, was your husband. Yeah. Now, we've been talking about the last times that you experienced something, that your husband experienced something, and you also describe his last time alone. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's when I could leave him at home. He became pretty sedentary after a while. The disease was more advanced. And um, and you mentioned he liked to watch movies. He liked DVDs. That was one of his favorite things. He stocked up at Costco on DVDs. So here he is. Yeah, go ahead. Excuse me. And, and usually the DVDs last close to two hours. And so I figured I could run to the store and get back and usually I didn't leave him alone for any length of time but I would I needed to go to the store and I timed it very carefully and and he almost never got up in the middle of a movie so I ran to the store and I was gone about 20 maybe 30 minutes and I came back and he's sitting in in the living room where I left him watching tv and there are two adults men, two adult women, and three young children sitting in the living room with him. And Randy's watching his movie, and they're all looking incredibly awkward. And I'm trying to, oh, hi, who are you? And <laughs> they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And they had come down. We had a very private property. You had to come down a long private drive before you even saw the house and they had walked down the drive and knocked on the door and our dog Gus Gus 
would bark when the door, when somebody would knock on the door or the doorbell would ring and he would run back and forth until you went to the door. And Randy didn't respond to doorbells anymore or knocking. He didn't respond to those kinds of cues, but he would follow Gus if Gus kept going back and forth. So what I figured out happened was that Gus had gotten him to the door and he opened the door and the people stood there and he had two phrases at that time. He would say, oh, wow, or <laughs> gone. <laughs> the only things he would ever say. And so I'm sure that they handed him their pamphlets and he said, oh, wow. <laughs> and, they and they followed him back into the house. And because he was very accommodating I mean he would have looked it would have been oh well wow <laughs> and, and they thought they were going to have a conversation and he sat down and continued watching his movie when they got in and of course he I'm sure they tried to engage him but he wouldn't engage at all and so that's when I came in and it was um you say that um <laughs> if he if you found him out walking around looking for you and if anybody stopped to ask what he was doing he would say hold on <laughs> that's exactly right and, or and you said oh wow yeah so hold on was a typical response of his and it became very dangerous because he would go into the neighborhood we had a street that had a very tight um curve and he'd walk down the middle of the street mm -hmm. yeah and he'd look in friends neighbors windows if he saw their car because you yeah. know and a police officer sees this kind of behavior looking in windows a policeman's uh not going to be very sympathetic no and especially when he looks completely normal and they ask him what his name is he's not going to be able to tell them and he says hold on or whatever he's they're gonna throw him in the back of the car <laughs> after a break i'll be Resuming my conversation with author Sandy Paris, whose book is a memoir, Catching Rain. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Sandy Paris, who has written a memoir about her husband's descent into dementia. The title of her book is Catching Rain. So this is another group. I've mentioned groups of people who uh, should read this book, and um, I think policemen. Oh, great idea, Nancy. <laughs> because when they encounter that, a lot of times policemen are not trained to handle this kind of situation and that's when a social worker is yes. i think that's when we should call a social worker to help somebody in this situation or Absolutely. even when they go to the hospital a lot of times what somebody needs is a social worker yes because i think i make the point often that what as we go through more and more experiences when it becomes more debilitated and we have to do deal with more medical people and care people um not having an advocate is you have to have an advocate when you can't speak yourself whether you're having a brain injury or or a mental health crisis then i think that's what they're talking about when they say defend the police i think they're talking about reorganizing funding so at least that's what i've read so that they can have qualified social workers and mental health workers, crisis intervention folks on the police force so that if they get a call that this 
guys walking down the middle of the street and looking in people's windows, mm-hmm. but he's not seeming to be dangerous. He's just bizarre. Um, they can bring a mental health person with them. And I think that's incredibly important. Yeah. It's my, a, I'll say. <laughs> my guest is Sandy Paris, and we were talking about her memoir, Catching Rain, and the chapter specifically on last times. And you conclude your chapter with last shower. And here's this big, strong guy. Okay. Uh, what was the problem there, Sandy? Well, at some point, he just decided he wasn't going to shower again. And we think it, it correlated with when he stopped riding his bicycle. Because um, gradually, you know, he, he stopped riding out, but then he would go down and train. And he had a training bicycle in the garage, and he'd watch movies and, and, and train and ride with Lance. And um, then he stopped training on his bike. And when he stopped training on his bike, he stopped taking showers because when I looked back, I realized that the only time he really took a shower is after he got on his bike. And so it wasn't that he was showering to get clean because it, you know, like when you go to work and you take a shower, it was because he rode his bike. So he then would get in the shower. And after he stopped riding his bike and after weeks and weeks of not riding his bike, it became a real problem. And I tried everything to get him in the shower. His son, Jordan, who's really strong, tried to wrestle him in and I tried to entice him in and um, we did everything. We could not get him in the shower. It was just horrific. And, and yeah. So it's it's becoming obvious to the reader, Sandy, that you are going to need help and so you say you started to research and evaluate care options in your area for a guy who's 6'3", 180 pounds, and only 55 years old. He was physically strong, but he didn't respond to anything you asked him to do. And and what did you find out as far as care options? You say there were none, not in none. And, and that was the other thing, the elder law attorney that we had gotten to because a neurologist in in San Francisco had taken my hands and looked in my eyes and said, you are going to need help. This is going to be really hard and you need to get some legal advice and get some things done. And, and we did all of that. And, and I was so grateful to her because, because if we had waited any longer, he couldn't have participated. And it was a critical thing as things pr- progressed. And when we reached well, the point- I think this is an important part, part that you're making point that you're making right now, Sandy, that you consulted an elder, somebody who was an attorney, who was a specialist yeah. in elderly law, mm-hmm. in, excuse me, elder law. And that's yeah. not something people want to, we don't want to think about that, Sandy, yeah. but- if we read your story, you think, oh, maybe I need to consult somebody who specializes in elder law. Absolutely. And I think it's really critical. And people told me this, but until I experienced it, and of course, different situations require different measures, but everyone with a long-term illness um, should, should consult with an elder law. Because otherwise, um, you things may be set up that you lose your home. Well, initially, when we went to the elder law attorney, he um, believed probably that we would find care within our community. And when, and if we had done so, he did all the paperwork, set everything up so that I would be able to stay in my home and retain enough income to maintain it, even after we spent down all of our resources for his care. But because we would be private paying for a while, um, we would get into care facilities. And there was one, a very nice one, not too far from our home, which is what I had dreamed of doing. Um, if I had to place him, it turned out that they would not accept him. And I visited all of the care facilities within a 20 to 30 mile radius. And none of them would accept him because of his age, his height, and his disability, his kind of dementia, his lack of language. And, and um, so they refused. your savings may not last more than a few more years. And yet he's so healthy, he could live 
much longer than your savings could last. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so not only would they not accept him when we were at private pay, but if if we ran out while he was there, they would have evicted him. And and of course, that would have been at a much more advanced stage of dementia. And there would have been nowhere to put him in our community. Um, and if there was an emergency placement needed, it would it could have been in the Bay Area. I mean, we would have had to accept anything that would accept Medicare, which is what he would have been on by that time. So it was devastating to find that nobody in our community, and there were a few, there were two facilities that would accept Medicare, but they had a waiting list very long and they refused to put him on the list for the same reasons that other people didn't want him in their facilities, which is what took us to Oregon and ultimately what led me to losing my home and and I don't mean losing my home. I made the decision to sell my home because I couldn't manage it all without, and we needed that money. So that's what we did. This when is a memoir, uh, Catching Rain, written by Sandy Paris. And she has described what happens and why you need to not wait till an emergency to check into these sorts of things. Um, because these these behaviors that you're describing can just speed up. He could have ended up in jail or a psychiatric hospital. This is what you're saying, or an emergency placement. Yes. And all these things could have happened. And even if this facility was hundreds of miles away, it would no longer be your choice. And so you say you put that search for appropriate placement at the very top of your priority list. Yes. I decided that I couldn't wait any longer. Once I realized the obstacles that we would face, um, I knew that I was going to have to take him out of the area. And I wanted to have a choice because some of the places that I visited, you would not want to put a loved one in. And I needed to be close to him. So, um, yes, that's when we went to Oregon and my family lived in Oregon. So um, we started there and found a place in California. I don't know if this is still true, but at that time, they um, didn't require, um, it was a choice whether facilities wanted to certify for Medicare or not. And most of them, especially the nice facilities, do not certify so that when someone in their care runs out of money, they can say, oh, we, we, we're not certified to take Medicare. And so they have to leave. Um, so it's a choice on the facility management where they, they design it that way. They don't want poor people in their facility, but in Oregon, they do accept if you're, they wouldn't have accepted him on Medicare or Medicaid rather, but because we, um, were private pay when we put him into the facility, um, they accepted Medicaid in Oregon as Medicaid and California as Medicare. They accepted it because he was an established patient. And so there was a, supposed to be a seamless transition, but financially it was incredibly important. And it turned out to be kind of an emergency situation when his dementia took a swift turn into a kind of a untenable situation. Um, at least we didn't have to worry about the payment part about him being kicked out for that reason. So this is where you have us as readers at this point. But now I'm sure people are thinking, okay, they may move to um, Oregon. That was 2015. And so I'm using the past tense when I refer to your husband. He was. So how did he pass? Um, he passed because his dementia prevented us from keeping his mouth clean. This sounds like a really, something you would never consider. Um, he had had pneumonia at one point and we were really fighting. And this is one of the things that I think we need to address as a, as a nation, um, end of life choices. And, and I think that with, um, 
dementia patients in particular, it's starting to gradually shift, but um, even the states that are right, that, that allow you to die if you have a um, terminal illness, even those states require a last minute awareness of your situation where you're able to certify and doctors have to sign off, but you also have to be able to say, yes, this is what I want. I understand that I'm terminal and I'm dying and I want to do it this way. And so you have to be able to say that. And when a person has dementia, even though they are terminal and they are dying and they have an advanced directive that says exactly that, um, there are people that are pushing back on that. And, and because the person with dementia now cannot say that that's still what they want, then they're not allowing them to abide by the advanced directive. Um, things like giving them penicillin, antibiotics if they get an infection, which would be a natural way to die. Um, there's some pushback depending on who the people are. And that's one of the few things that we can do. And, and he did not want antibiotics. And so he first got pneumonia and we withheld the antibiotics, but it was a battle because they wanted to give them to him and accused me of trying to kill my husband. And it was her. And he actually got through that. We believe they gave him antibiotics on the side. We found evidence of that later. But then later um, we knew because he was still physically strong and relatively healthy, we knew that that was, he would be forced to go through in stage many more years of confinement in debilitating um, circumstances. And um, they, we couldn't, we, we couldn't clean his mouth. And one day we knew that there'd be another infection. That would be the only way that he could get out of this if he didn't have a heart attack or a stroke. Otherwise, he would just be forced to go through this end stage stuff. And then as we conclude, Sandy, I might let people know that was two years ago that your husband died. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to remind readers, listeners, that the title of your book is Catching Rain, A Woman Rediscovers Herself in Stories Her Lover Has Forgotten. Thank you, Sandy, for writing this book. You're welcome. Thank you for asking about it. But Randy died because he got an infection that went septic. His teeth were terrible and he was found chewing on a blanket and, and bleeding. And um, he began, began run, running a fever. And we had a team at that time that was willing to withhold the antibiotics, which was his wish. And so that's how he died. Again, the author is Sandy Paris, the title of her book, Catching Rain. been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org. There's a correction to be made in this episode where Nancy's guest mistakenly says Medicare when she meant to say Medicaid. Sandy has asked us to clarify that Medicare does not contribute to the cost of long-term care, while Medi-Cal or Medicaid does. Thank you.